With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The thinking atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea. The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Assume nothing. Question everything. And start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast. Hosted by Seth Andrews. Right before I went to junior high, I was enrolled in a program called ACE, Accelerated Christian Education. And don't let the name fool you. It was not any kind of education. It was indoctrination, right? It was the Prager U of that time, except even worse, and it's still being used today. If you've seen the Amazon docu-series, Shiny Happy People, about the Duggar family, and about Bill Gothard and the IBLP, the Institute for Basic Life Principles, then you're kind of on that page. A-C-E, terrifying, taught to children all around the world today. Well, somebody who is an expert on ACE, who was once programmed, as I was, as so many of you were, she's going to join me to talk about it, to get into the specific lessons and how children are being trained to take over the country and the world with materials that will set your moral centers on fire. That's coming up here later on in the month of January. Also, this month, I'm going to talk to Catherine Stewart. Her book, The Power Worshippers, was at least one of the inspirations for this new documentary that's coming out. It is produced by Rob Reiner, the director of Princess Bride and When Harry Met Sally and A Few Good Men and This is Spinal Tap and so many others. He's behind this. That film's going to release nationwide next month, but I'm going to talk to Catherine Stewart about some of the big names and the big messages behind the movie God and Country. There is video of today's conversation. The link to that's in the description box of the show. 
couple of very special guests, skeptical guests today. I've got my dear friend, Adrian Hill. She is a guerrilla skepticism on Wikipedia editor since 2019. We're going to talk about that. Former teacher, I guess she may still be a teacher in many regards today, a reporter for the Skeptic Zone podcast. She hosts virtual skeptic camps. What are those? I don't know. We're going to find out. And she is a contributor to magazines like Skeptical Inquirer or SI. Richard Saunders from Sydney, Australia. He starred as the Skeptical Judge on uh, two seasons of the television show called The One, The Search for Australia's Most Gifted Psychic. He is host of the Skeptic Zone podcast. He is an origami expert and a children's author. We spoke to him, I want to say it was last year, maybe the year before, Richard, we were uh, talking about the big psychic prediction project that was going on. Is that right? That was right. I can't exactly remember when that was. It's been a long year for me. I think it was last year. But yeah, that was a huge, huge undertaking. Adrian was part of that the team, the international team, and we studied almost 4,000 predictions to um, get a very good understanding of can people tell the future? I think we have to start there again, because a lot of people have either forgotten or maybe missed that conversation. You did a study, I don't know, I want to call it peer review. I mean, what? how would you qualify the study of psychics, Richard? Good question. It's waiting to be peer reviewed. I hope it will be peer reviewed or more precisely, I hope somebody will copy the format and the idea in their own area. Now, this was a, a study undertaken for published psychic or other predictions made in Australia over a 20 year period. So what I would really hope is that somebody in another country, say the United States, might say, okay, we'll do Colorado. We'll look at all the psychic predictions published in Colorado for a year because to do the whole of the United States would be untenable. But if they do it, then I would be interested to see the results. We came to the conclusion, myself and the international team, that roughly 11% of psychic predictions can be categorized as coming true which means almost 90% are either wrong, too vague, or predicted. And so our conclusion was there's no reason to think that people have special mystical knowledge about future events. Well, let me, I got hung up on that word, and you can speak to this if you want, Adrian, but vague. Isn't that the calling card of the psychic, right? The Forer effect or the Barnum effect, you know, you throw out a, a kind of a bunch of vagaries, if that's even a word, and people just lean into those predictions. I'll let either of you speak to that. Yeah, I think that we definitely found most of the predictions. I don't know what percent. I'm sure there is a percentage that you have, Richard, in your little pie charts. And we found a lot of them to be extremely vague, very difficult to even parse out sometimes and figure out what they were trying to predict. And lots of laughter, lots of fun. And I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was quite high, those vague Barnum statements. Well, give me an example of a, of a vague Barnum statement. I'm sitting in your chair. There's the crystal ball. I mean, you know, work me a little bit. I gave you my hundred bucks or whatever you're, you're charging. What am I looking at? You've come in here because you're a questioning individual. I can sense that. I think you have some trouble... Well, you certainly had some trouble when you were younger coming to terms with just who you are. You do have an optimistic outlook. You can be the life of the parties, except sometimes you need to be alone. 
You, uh, it, it, what we discovered, <laughs> I've got you to a T, right? What yes. we discovered in, in the uh, predictions we looked at, when we say vague, they were more like uh, if they were talking about a famous film star. This famous film star has great opportunities ahead of her. Sometimes she wonders if she's taken the, the right career path. Financial troubles are always a concern. Okay, that's what <laughs> that's what we were getting, a lot of those sort of things. One was from uh, North America was when we learned what clucky was because one of the predictions was around clucky Venus having an effect on I believe it was Angelina Jolie or some other star, and we thought that was hilarious. And clucky in Australia means you want to have a baby. Well, what is wait? What's clucky mean in the states? I'm I'm just a minnow. I don't know what that means. I don't think it means anything. I mean, I've only heard. In Australia, or I guess the UK, it just means you want to have children. You, yeah. you, you're clucky. You, you want to have children. But I've called up the stats just quickly. And so I can see that 11% we could say of all the nearly 4,000 predictions, 11% we could sort of categorize as coming correct. The vague, which we were talking about before, took up 19% of all the predictions. The expected, like there will be earthquakes in California, took up 15%. And a tiny percentage, 2%, was unknown. We couldn't get to the bottom of the prediction. It was too hard to find out. And over 50%, 53% were flat out wrong. So that's, that's the quick breakdown. Adrian, I know that you do a lot of work with Wikipedia. Explain what you are doing on Wiki. Trying to make sure that fringe topics such as ghosts and anything health related that's you know the wellness industry anything that's not scientifically backed those pages have good sources good resources and good information on them and also science people so if there's somebody in the science world a science communicator we want to make sure that they have good pages good accurate pages that they stand the test of time and it's a constant battle there's not a lot of us there's millions of Wikipedia editors. We are a small group of about 120 is usually what we're around from around the world in multiple languages, trying to make sure that good, reliable information is on science pages and fringe pages and making sure that good information is out there. And we also try and put on our psychic hats and predict who might be next and get the page ready and have it there for when they blow up in the news. And that has happened to a few of us. And of course we don't have psychic hats, it was just luck. One of my favorite ones was Christiane Northrup. I did her page. She is a gynecologist or was a gynecologist. I believe her license has been revoked. Appeared on Oprah Winfrey, sold books, sold crazy stuff about women's health and Someone said, you need to do her page. I did her page. And within six months, she was listed as one of the dozen people that misinformation from COVID was coming from, one of the top dozen. And her page went through the roof. So lots of people were suddenly running to her page and seeing that maybe we shouldn't listen to this woman because her information is not very valid. It's not accurate. It's not based in science. So if I'm understanding, you were able to sort of front load the page with the skeptical aspect of it before somebody else goes in and front loads it with the celebrity 
aspect yeah, of it? And I don't know if you it, it would be front-loading it with skepticism. I would like to treat it as I'm front-loading it with accurate information. Okay. And you know, that's what we want to do is make sure that it's as accurate as possible. And will people come in and try and remove it and change it? Yes. Yes, they will. But the editors, there's strict rules in Wikipedia. And yes, it can be changed. It can be changed quickly, but it gets reverted back very quickly if it's considered vandalism or if there's an interest in it. For example, I just finished the Sarah Winchester page. And last year I did the Winchester Mystery House. And what happened almost immediately when I did that page, because the page was there before, but it was filled with the stuff that you're just talking about. It was all about the lore and it was stated as truth that she was a crazy woman when in actual fact she wasn't. And there were reasons why she did what she did. And she wasn't afraid of ghosts. She wasn't spiritual at all. And yet the rumors persisted from the time of her living for 100 years. Her, the 100 years of her death was just this last year. And immediately, we believe it was somebody from the Winchester Mystery House came on and tried to revert everything that I had done. However, other editors, not part of the Gorilla Skeptics, came in and went, uh-uh, you can't do that. This person has used very good sources like historians, Brian Dunning, Joe Nickel, people who are well known in the community, and we have to keep it this way. And they later divulged, if it was the same person, that they did indeed work for the house, for the Winchester Mystery House. And they wanted the idea that she was afraid of ghosts, that she built crazy things because she was afraid of the spirits. And I think that does an injustice to somebody who was really smart and really good with mathematics. Of course, that's my background. So I kind of had a liking for this woman. She was fascinating to learn about. No, I know ghost fans and ghost story fans like me already familiar, but I want to do my due diligence and talk about what you're talking about. The Winchester legend was that what her husband had died and she had to continue to build onto the house because of the angst she felt that her family was behind the creation of Winchester rifles, weapons that had killed and to ward off the ghosts of those who died at the end of a Winchester rifle. She felt she had to um, appease the spirits by building the mansion. Am I remembering that right? Either one of you? That's that one of the many lores that exist. But yes, that is definitely one of the big ones, as well as she built the maze-like house because she was trying to trick the spirits so she could be safe. So there are lots of reasons around that. And what's really interesting about that particular story is it was highly unlikely that she felt any guilt because of the Winchester rifles. One, she remained on the board of the company until she died. The other one was at that time, owning a gun was seen as a survival necessity. So that lore was actually not correct, just because of the culture of the time, as well as she stayed on the board. If there was, had been any guilt, my guess would she would have sold the stocks and got rid of them. She would have been more financially well off if she had done it, actually, because after the First World War, the stocks plummeted a lot and she lost most of her fortune. Not that she was poor by any means. She had a very vast fortune, but you know, she would have definitely gotten rid of that if there had been any guilt. Why did she continue to add on to the mansion until she died, according to the story? And that's another myth. She actually did not 
keep building until the day she died. She stopped building after it was the 1906 earthquake. It collapsed most of the house. So most of the house that was there actually was destroyed and she stopped. She was getting old by then. Her health was very poor and she just kind of gave up on her favorite project. Why did she build for the many, many years that she did build, which was I think 1886 until 1906, so 20 years of building. There's speculation. Part of it is she had a love of architecture and design and her and her husband actually built a home with architects when they lived in the Connecticut region in New Haven. And when he died and she moved to California, it was kind of a natural progression for her to continue this passion. She tried to hire some architects and wasn't happy with what they wanted to do. So she just did it on her own. She was a project manager and designer of that house. And she kept building. And originally she wanted to build it so her whole family could stay with her. There's speculation based on letters that she kept building so that they wouldn't live with her. So <laughs> hey, Richard, is, as I recall, aren't there stairways to nowhere and a bunch of hidden secret rooms? And, the, there mean, are. It's it's a really interesting historical place to wander around. And there, I I remember seeing it on on TV shows in the nineteen late nineteen seventies. There was a show called That's Incredible, which was an American show, but it was broadcast in Australia. And they made it out to be the craziest nonsense house you could possibly imagine. Why would you do this? But when I listened to the episode, uh, Brian Dunning's Skeptoid episode about her and the house, and I listened to, I read the research done by people like Adrian Hill, and you piece it all together, it's a wonderful story. The truth is a wonderful story. But I can understand, there's a, an appeal about, she did this because of ghosts or this hauntings or this, are there spirits really there? A lot of people really get off on that. You know, a lot of people, that fires their imagination. Okay, it's a fun story, but the real story is really worth telling and it's respectable to her. It's, it's out of respect to her that the real story should be told. I didn't mean to spend 10 minutes on the Winchester house, but I'm... <laughs> I, having been fascinated by it, I never saw the film poorly reviewed. I didn't bother with it. I thought you know, reading about it was actually much more compelling. Richard, uh, any other ghost houses that marked you? I don't mean terrified you because I know you better than that. But come on, you've you've gotten into the ghostly kind yeah. of thing. Give me some yeah. anecdotes. I wish I could tell you I went to the Australia's most haunted house or Sydney's most haunted house. There are a lot of most haunted houses in Australia, it turns out. I think there are a lot of most haunted houses in the United States and Canada, depending on who you talk to. But seriously, when I've turned up to investigate or ghost tours or whatever the case may be, it really struck me early on that I'm standing in a dark room at night and it's a bit quiet outside. And I even left recording equipment walked away for half an hour, came back and listened to everything clearly. And you can hear the odd dog barking or something like that. But if you go into a haunted location with somebody who believes, then every imagined or real slight temperature change, I mean, they're primed, you know, they're primed for anything strange. And I'll interpret anything strange as a ghost or unworldly or, or something like that. But to be really frank, after a little while, it's just standing in a cold room at night. That's it. Nothing <laughs> happens. You know, I wouldn't mind if, if the ghost of someone or other walked by. It, at least it would be something. Yeah, break and the it, tedium. Yeah, it, I get would, that. And I certainly 
have spoken to people who couldn't, not that they wouldn't, but they physically couldn't spend hours in a dark room in a supposedly haunted location. They would be too terrified. And I can understand that. It would be a huge mental problem for them. And it would be like a torture to make them do it. For me, just give me a comfortable chair and I'll just sit through it. You know, that's about it. Do you, I'm sure Adrian gets it too. People are pissed at you. They're upset. You've, you're attacking their, they wouldn't call them illusions. These are deep seated beliefs, things that they take very personally. And how dare you, Richard and Adrian, how dare you say these <laughs> things about these cherished, beloved, sacred stories? You've heard that either one of you. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm relatively well known in Australia as being a skeptic with media appearances and the podcast and everything. I'll often get people coming up to me in a social situation, having a drink at a bar or, or at a party, and they say, all right, Mr. Skeptic, what about this? And they want to put me on the spot and they want to show I'm wrong and, and you know prove me to be a fool. And I always say to them, okay, well, I'm, I'm happy to give, give you my opinion, but please remember you approached me. All right, I'm here minding my own business. I'm having a drink. If you, if I'll tell you what I think. And they say, yeah, yeah, sure. And then they get upset with me. I'm sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, I'm not going to see Adrian on the Winchester brochures. That they're not, Her photo is not going to be on their promotional materials now because she is sort of attacking what people have. You know, there's an awe and wonder and a magic. I buy that. I mean, you would agree, Adrian. People, they love the yarn. They love the story, the mystery of it, right? Well, and. Part of the fascination with the Winchester story is that these stories about ghosts started when she was alive. So this is nothing new. And I don't think we need to get rid of that. I think we need to say, okay, this is what started in the 1800s because she was quite reclusive. And so people made up stories. And it was a big part of the spiritualist movement at the time. So somebody, some widow believing in ghosts seemed to be a reasonable thing to surmise. But now let's add in the truth. Let's add in what has been discovered by historians, particularly Mary Jo Ignafo, who wrote her biography, wonderful book. And let's put that in there as well. One of the things that was really fun at PsyCon that I just came back from a few weeks ago, Brian Dunning was there, who did the original Skeptoid episode that spurned this whole production of the Winchester Mystery Page revamp that I did. It was because of his episode. He's, he turned to me and said, well, that episode was like a year ago. And Mary Jo Ignafo's book's been out since, I think it's 2015. I mean, they're not doing that anymore, are they? I purchased the 100-year anniversary souvenir book and had it sent to me. And yes, it's still full of all of the lore and very little saying, well, actually, this is not found to be true. So I think, you know, wasn't it Hitchens, if I can jump in, H yeah. Hitchens said the real world is wonderful enough. I mm -hmm. mean, right? We don't mm -hmm. have to lie to ourselves. And, and I also think we are human beings, creatures of imagination. We can spin yarns, fictitious tales, and enjoy the wonder of fiction, yeah. always knowing it's fiction. That's fair, right? Yeah, well, as the old saying goes, we are storytelling animals. Mm -hmm. This is hardwired into us to tell stories. They are a huge part of what makes a human a human are stories. It's how we remember things. It's how we learn things. It's how we carry the tradition of our ancestors, stories. That's why 
soap operas from everything from Star Wars to whatever works because it's a story which resonates with us. And if that story is fanciful or is wonderful or, or carries you away, well, that's hardwired into us. Also, the, the true stories, you hear about this true crime and reality TV, supposedly reality TV, it boils down to stories. Macbeth is a story. So you, you can't underestimate how important that is to us as humans. It boggles me to think that people really don't have that perspective. And you have to take that into perspective when people get carried away and it becomes real and true to them. It's not surprising and it's something we as skeptics really have to take into consideration. Stand by. More to come with my special guests right after this. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talking here with Adrian Hill. She is a retired math teacher. Now she is a guerrilla skepticism on Wikipedia editor and co-chair of the annual Western Canadian Reason Conference. Also with me is paranormal investigator, skeptic, TV host, and author Richard Saunders. Did you find yourself becoming history students? Adrian said the word lore several times. So as you dig into the lore, you are students of history, the, the stories behind the lore. Am I reading that right? Yeah. Definitely. And if you'd said to my 20-year-old self, who was a math major at university, that I was going to be doing history when I retired and writing, that's the other thing that's so incredible, I would have laughed at you. There's no way I would have thought that that would be a direction I would take, but I'm really enjoying it. It's fascinating. Quick digression, just because you come from a teaching background. Is it true from your perception, you're not on the hook, but people who are good at English and math are terrible at history and science. I mean, the, the, there are some rules that people have posited that said, if you're good at these studies, you're going to be shit at these studies. Is there any truth to any of that? I don't know. And I doubt it. I'm sure that there are, <laughs> I think it's more interest driven than anything. That's my okay. opinion on it. But I'm- It's true. I mean, like I was good at English and I was horrible at at science, which is weird because in Christian school, our science wasn't even really science. It was like, <laughs> it was like God made the trees. That was our science books. God made the cells and, and Adam and Eve. It's, it's weird. It's Richard, tell me about this uh, television background of yours. You're on TV as the skeptic. Yeah. Well, well, uh, some time ago, I did a two series of a show where I was a, the judge. You know, you have these TV shows where they have dances or singers or whatever and every week 
people get voted off. Well, I was on a show like that for people who claim to have psychic ability. And I would look at them and try to judge how well they did in a series of tests. I mean, it's television. It was mostly done for ratings and fun. It wasn't, hopefully wasn't taken too seriously, but it did give me a good insight into a lot of psychics in Australia. And it gave me a great insight into how the public react to someone like me, how they react to a skeptic. And I tried to be funny and pleasant and polite and cheerful and just no nonsense on the screen. But I would get letters from people saying, uh, dear Mr. Saunders, that skeptic you play on TV, are you really that arrogant or are you like that in real life? <laughs> you're the so, bad guy in their story. How can I, you be the bad guy? And you're just a teddy bear. I was, the, I was the bad Well, a story needs a villain. I was painted like that because a lot of the people who were tuning in were tuning in to see their favorite psychic. And here's me saying, oh, you know what? They really didn't do anything psychic today. So, of course, I was... <laughs> I was painted at the villain, but I I, um, I appear well, quite often whenever there's a story on about the psychics or the UFOs or the paranormal, they'll call me up, the, the Australian skeptics, and I'll front up to the cameras. I did a couple of TV appearances a couple of months ago within days of each other on two different networks. The story was there's a young man, he's the latest psychic wonder kid on the block in Australia, and his shtick is that he has a radio which – they call it a spirit box. It's simply a radio receiver where the mechanism's been altered. So it scans like a car radio can scan the frequencies, but it never locks on. So it continually goes as it's scanning all the frequencies and you hear a snippet of, of uh, what's being broadcast. Well, to some people, they think this is how ghosts communicate with us. The ghosts use radio to send messages. And if you listen long enough, you can hear what the ghosts are trying to tell you. Now, it's nothing new. These ghost boxes have been around for a while. We know the phenomenon called audio pareidolia, where your brain is making sense out of randomness. But the, the TV networks, they hadn't quite seen this before. So they were amazed. And they rang me up and said, do you know what a spirit box is? It's amazing. You can hear the ghosts. And I'm just going... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, welcome to the party. You are late, but uh, that's welcome. right. Yeah, but I did appear on two different TV shows, and at least on one, I got to bend a spoon. So that was quite fun. <laughs> There's, uh, I saw you do that at a conference in Canada. Do you just? I'm trying to remember. Do you just pre-bend the spoon, or do you break another spoon? Do they have to be a certain kind of spoon? All my spoons I get, I either get from a, a giant catering store in Sydney, which is for restaurants and hotels and stuff. So they're just standard spoons. Or Adrian Hill, when I turned up in Canada, she went to eBay and bought hundreds of standard spoons. Now, there are various ways to bend a spoon. There's lots of methods to the trick, but to start with, all you need to do is get relatively cheap teaspoons that you would normally use in cafes and whatnot. From that th that aspect, it can be easy. You just have to learn learn how to do it. But knowing how to do it, I mean, you could be ridiculously wealthy. You could be the Yuri Geller <laughs> of Australia. You could you could cash those chips in, right, Adrian? I mean, if he went and bent spoons, because, uh, someone told me that Yuri once was allegedly hired by a government to be a psychic for that i don't know if that's uh, that may be lore or i don't know if that's oh, true new york times recently i think he probably was there are there are people are people 
people are in all walks of life throughout society, from scientists to journalists to politicians, and a certain percentage of our fellow humans may not be as aware as we are about certain magic tricks and ways of thinking. So people in government make blunders and ridiculous errors all the time. So it's natural that every now and then something like the police calling in a psychic or a government official calling in someone like a, a water diviner. That happens. That's true. So you talked about, I mentioned Yuri Geller, and I obviously have a, an amazing segue, totally unintended, but I'm going to take credit for it anyway, because it was James Randi who helped to debunk this psychic spoon bender who is, I think, still out there even today. Yes. And admired and loved by a whole culture of people who think he's the real deal. But uh, James Randi, who he called himself a conjurer, but also a great skeptic, one of the world's greatest magicians. You may be able to introduce the legend of the late James Randi better than me. Either one of you want to tell everybody more about Randi before we talk about his work? I'll grab it really quickly. Randy okay. and I were actually very good friends. Um, I met him first, I'm guessing, 20, 25 years ago. But certainly in the last 10 years before he died, he and I became very good friends and we collaborated a lot. And I toured Rand with Randy in Australia. He did a big speaking engagement and I was one of the, the people on the tour who would be doing the fireside chat, you know, interviewing Randy on stage. So Randy was originally from Canada and when he was a very young man, he knew some basic magicians' routines and tricks, and he went to a spiritual spiritualist church. How am I saying? It's a church that deals with the spirits and contacting the dead and all that sort of stuff. And the guy at the front was doing a magic trick. It's called the one-ahead routine, where you get a, an envelope and you open it up, and you it's like magic. You knew what the envelope, the, the card would say, but it, it's actually because you saw the, the previous card. And now you see what this card is. It's an old magician's trick. You can look it up called one ahead. And he was incensed. And he said, you know, at that young age, how can these people be lying to their congregation? They're using a, a standard magic trick. And that sort of set him on the path later in life to exposing when magicians go off the rails and hoodwink and con and lie and cheat because he always said what he does was honest he was an honest liar he said i'm going to fool you i'm going to lie and i'm going to do it he never said i'm going to really bend the spoon using psychic power so that's what randy was all about but he was amazing in one sense he never stopped being a, a professional conjurer he had a big career as a conjurer and a, an escape artist like houdini but whenever he had three or four people around him in any situation to almost his death, he would break out the, the cards and just wow everybody and make things disappear. And it was quite extraordinary. He was a wonderful man. And as a friend, I miss my friend. But, but of course, he was, he was a, just a, an amazing guy. I had the honor of bumping into him at a skeptics convention somewhere years ago, obviously. And there's no pretense. So I'm, I've got a camera rig in the other room. I'm shameless. I walk up, Mr. Randy, you know, James, James, James please. I would love to sit you down on camera and just talk to you for 15 minutes. I mean, I know everybody's pawing at you and it's, he's like, ah, yeah, come on, let's go. <laughs> we just immediately walked in and he sat down and the guy was as freaking sharp as a tack. And 
talk about an encyclopedia of amazing experiences. Oh, yeah. You ever meet him, Adrian? You ever get a chance to shake his hand? Or mostly do you know him by legendary reputation? Yeah, I just know him by their legendary reputation. He was at the PsyCon I was at 2018. That was my very first PsyCon. I just started my training for guerrilla skepticism on Wikipedia. Believe it or not, I was quite shy and didn't really approach people very much, but I did admire from a distance and he did talk uh, in a, from his wheelchair. And as you say, sharper than anything, the stories were mesmerizing. So I had an, the opportunity to see him live, but I've never met him. Well, you know, his book, The Faith Healers, was such a brave takedown. You know, I come from Tulsa, sort of the home of Oral Roberts, and <sighs> the uh, traveling evangelist, the tent revivals. And he would go around and they would have people climb up on stage and they were miraculously, quote unquote, healed and they would throw their crutches. And, you know, it was James Randi who helped to blow the lid off that and talk about how there were actors and how some of these people were handpicked and then they would go home and die after they had thrown their medications away. So this stuff was never harmless. You know, there are some people like, oh, it gives them hope, right? Why would you ever criticize somebody who is giving them hope? And I'm like, well, first of all, I think he's selling hope at the end of an offering plate. But two, many of these people believing they were healed, it was just uh, what, endorphins, maybe they just were caught up in the moment, but then they go home and they're back in the same boat, right? Yep. Wikipedia, and I had this in my notes, and I don't want to forget it, Adrian. So there are editors for pages. There are people who submit information and then they source the information and there are others who fact check the information. But isn't Wikipedia the wild west? One of the criticisms is it's insane over there. Like you never know what you're going to get. It's how do you know it's reliable? Who watches the watchers kind of thing? Tell me about Wikipedia and reliability from your perspective, would you? Yeah, sure. I, I'll do the best I can. I do believe there have been studies saying it has become as reliable as something like the Encyclopedia Britannica. I think if you find an old article from when it first started in the Wild West, that truly was the Wild West of Wikipedia, it will be problematic. But And if it survives, it's just because nobody's noticed it. There's a lot of articles on Wikipedia. And essentially, the the you have a sandbox. Sorry, I got to move this out of the way. I keep knocking. Go it. ahead. Move all your stuff. It's all good. <laughs> the sandbox is what we call our sandbox, where we do our initial work before we publish it. And then when we're ready to go, we publish it to the page. And immediately, in my instances at least, an admin or somebody who has been around a long time, and these are all volunteers, will check it out, make sure it meets the criteria for reliable sources. And there is pages and pages of what a reliable source is, and it's very fluid. So New York Times, for example, is considered a reliable source. However, there are certain articles in the New York Times that would not be considered reliable, particularly moving forward, because things change, headlines change, science changes. And so if we've got something updated and new, you could say in the Wikipedia page, well, that used to be what we thought, but now we know it's wrong. And so it's very fluid. Opinion pieces are not considered reliable sources, even from New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera. So we have to be very careful. So yeah, there's people, other editors who watch, who know the rules. There's a lot of rules. And that's why if you want to just go and start editing Wikipedia, you can easily get banned because if you keep editing 
And even though you're trying to do your best, if you're not following the rules, you can get banned by the admins who are kind of watching things. And so, yeah, in the background, go to a talk page on some of the fringe issues and you'll see some heated arguments that are happening. But that's basically what it is. People put in an edit, somebody reviews it, and then they uh, it either stays or it doesn't. And so is it like wiki whack-a-mole? Is that what you're doing? Yeah. Somebody posts something? So I do have all my pages. I think I've got nine pages that I've done. All of them are on a watch list, and I get emailed if somebody changes it. What I'm amazed at, though, is I don't think I've ever had to revert myself. Somebody else always beats me to it. And it, sometimes it's a bot. There's a lot of bots on Wikipedia, and they can suss out vandalism pretty easily. On my haunted house page, for example, somebody posted something about chickens and chicken dinner. Well, obviously that has nothing to do with ghosts and it was vetoed right away. But other things like the woman who tried to change back the page to what it used to be for the Winchester Mystery House, that was caught by somebody who's not GSOW. There's other people who are watching. Remember, there's millions of editors. And don't forget too, what I was talking about is creating or recreating a whole page. I do lots of little edits. If I see a spelling mistake, I'll just go in and change it very quickly. Those kinds of things are appreciated and can be done by anybody. But if you really wanted to get into making a page, I highly recommend getting trained by Susan Gerbeck. It's a this, great program. No, yeah, I, I, you, I have to go back to chicken and haunted page or haunted house page. There is a haunted chicken story. I did it on the radio or on the podcast years ago. I think it was a, a chicken that they took to the butcher's block and yet the headless chicken, I call ah. it a poultry geist. That's yeah, a poultry geist. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's wandering the woods and people will see the headless chicken. I don't oh, know. Wow. I, I, For a while. Yeah. So yeah, add there that was to that wiki. A, an historical case of a headless chicken that was toured around as, as a freak, as a, an attraction. And it lived. It could, you know, it, they were able to feed it sustenance, but it had most of its head missing. So... I don't remember the details now, but my good friend in Australia, Dr. Carl Kruzelniski, who's Australia's version of Bill Nye, often talks about the headless chicken. So it's, oh, there's some truth behind that. It's so sad, Richard, that I know the name. It, it go, there's a website, Mike the Headless Chicken. Ah, yes. Just Google Mike the Headless Chicken. And apparently <laughs> this headless bird they fed with an eyedropper yeah. and it finally keeled over when a corn kernel got stuck in yes just, i think you're right yeah <laughs> i'm sorry Wikipedia page i don't know I, I, we have to have adrian go check that fact check the wiki page on it so back in the james randy foundation days the million dollar challenge was presented yeah. Yeah. explain because i want to find out if there's any version of that or a hybrid of that going on today explain what the challenge was if you would richard well, Randy, and I was only talking about this with somebody the other day, and it was either 1964 or 1965, I think it was 64, Randy was doing a radio show and a psychic or somebody said, well, put your money where your mouth is. And so Randy did. He wrote a check on the spot and said, well, you know, if you can do your psychic ability, here's $1,000. And that amount varied up and down according to Randy's fortunes and misfortunes financially. Eventually, with the James Randy Educational Foundation, it became a million dollars. And it was a million dollars until Randy retired. And I was part of the committee in the later years at the amazing meetings in Las Vegas, and we would test claimants for the million dollar prize. And all they had to do 
was tell us what their claim was succinctly so we understood we couldn't have anything too vague like oh i can tell what's in people's hearts sometimes or, or something like that no tell us exactly what you can do tell us under what conditions are you happy to do it on stage would that worry you can you do it on fridays that sort of thing and we'd also need to know what success rate can we or can you expect you know it's it's no good saying I've got this amazing ability. I can predict the toss of a coin 50% of the time, you know? <laughs> so they had to tell us exactly all those things. And then we would sit down and devise a test, a test they would pass if they had the ability that they claimed to have. And I think I was involved in six presentations in Las Vegas where we tested people uh, and they're all documented. You can see the videos of them. Needless to say, nobody ever passed the, the passing mark and the money was uh, retained by the foundation but the money there's money in in australia there's a hundred thousand dollars and that's been on offer for four decades i think in california the uh, iig i think have half a million dollars or, or a lot of money and, and various skeptical groups around the world it serves two purposes one is if somebody has a psychic power or something which completely defies the laws of physics then we would be happy to hand over the check because it would be major news if this person, whoever it is, could do this. From water divining to talking to the dead, a million dollars would be peanuts. It would be nothing. The second point to it is that it enables us in Australia, for example, to say to somebody we think is not quite legitimate, to say, well, we have $100,000. Can you prove your claim? And if they run and hide, then that's good publicity for us to say, well, look, why did they run in height? You know, here's the money. Why didn't they take our money? So that's the reason for the cash prizes around the world. Yeah, but Richard, I mean, if you've been involved in six or seven when it didn't work out, what did they say? Oh, I was trying to move stuff with my mind or I'm trying to predict the future. Oh, that didn't work out. What did they say as an excuse or reason? The ones I remember just off the top of my head were the skeptics were cheating, which is a... It's an interesting psychological point of view, because if, if you think, and we suspect the people who came to be tested, they really thought in their hearts, they really thought they had these magic powers. So when they were tested, they failed. They need to find an excuse. They can't just let it, oh, I failed. Oh, well, there you go. I can't do it. No, they looked for an excuse. And the easiest excuse is the tests were rigged against them. So that's what some of them said. And I can understand that. I mean, if if I was tested on my ability to, to um, I, you know, I do origami. I do lots of paper folding. I've written books about it. Say somebody said to me, Richard, come along. Here's $100,000. All you have to do is fold a little bird for us. I think these people are crazy. It's $300,000 for me. And I turn up and suddenly the paper melts or I can't remember what to do or something crazy happens. I would be looking to blame the organizers. Well, that's the same sort of thing that's going on in the heads of the people who really think they can divine for water or they have some sort of magical power, partly because they never test themselves. They just assume they can do this. It's, it's, uh, it all boils down to psychology. It's really interesting. Okay, how do we protect ourselves? against all the junk and the bunk out there. I'm gonna ask my expert guests next.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you so much for listening. Here in the new year, don't forget to subscribe to my second podcast, 5-Minute Vignettes, True Stories with Seth Andrews. Three times a week, you never know what you're going to get. True crime, celebrity trivia, weird news, fascinating history. True Stories with Seth Andrews. Continuing now with my special guests, skeptics Adrian Hill and Richard Saunders. Let's talk a little bit about how we can, I don't know, bunk-proof our lives. Adrian, is, I'm in this increasingly crazy world, the world of, I don't know, conspiracy, but beyond that, the deep fake and the AI stuff and the misinformation and uh, how in the world can I, I don't know, pre-bunk is the word. Give me some skills. Give me some tools. <laughs> oh, skills. That's a big one. Well, I'm going to go to my easy one, which is look at Wikipedia, because generally speaking, it's pretty well done. And the other thing that I've been asked about when you're talking to somebody who has crazy ideas that don't agree with yours, it's, you know, if you want to maintain the conversation, I quite often get asked, well, what, how do you tell if a source is a good one or not? And that's something I have to do as a Wikipedia editor. So I usually use uh, media check, uh, media Oh my goodness, what's it called? Media Bias Fact Check. There we go. Media Bias Fact Check. And it's a wonderful website because it weights it not only for the political view left or right, but also accurately. So if it does well with accuracy and it's on the right or left, it will get a fairly good rating. But if they start using a lot of adjectives, I guess is a good way to say it, uh, inflammatory language on either the extreme left or right, it will tell you that as well. So it's a good starting point to know if the source you're actually using is something that maybe you can listen to. Also, I mean, I like science-based medicine, Skeptical Inquirer, The Skeptic from Australia. Listen to some good podcasts. That would be good. (laughs) We lost Dr. Harriet Hall, the Skeptic, over at Science-Based Medicine. I was sad Mm -hmm. to hear that she had passed away a while back, and she was always... You know, I know she went hard at things like chiropractic, and boy, that was a that was a blow up, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, of all the things to go after, you know, she was pretty pretty fearless. By the way, before I ask Richard sort of for his resources, I know the U.S. has its own sort of flavor of ghost stories, superstitions, etc. Are there things really specific indigenous to Australia? Do you have your own type of lore down there? Yes, but you know what? Generally speaking, it's pretty much the same sort of thing you're going to get everywhere. Ghosts of ancestors, people disappearing mysteriously, strange monsters lurking in the water. You know, humans are humans. These, And we get back to the storytelling. These are stories being told. Water divining, water dowsing is popular in Australia, but it's a worldwide thing. You can find water, which is anywhere it's it's thousands of years old so it, it, you know we're all one one race we're on one human race you know we're all the same animal 
our brains work more or less the same way. So it's not surprising that you, you see the same themes repeated again and again around the world with maybe a bit of cultural flavor. All right. Well, as you are, by, I have to, sorry, I keep saying we're almost done and then I have another question, but this is how <laughs> my mind works. I'm like a child, easily distracted by flashy, shiny things. Origami. Well, where did that start? I mean, I don't even know what the word, where the word origami comes from. So what? What's going on, Richard? What's going on? It's, it's paper folding. It's making animals and, and shapes and, and wonderful things out of paper, just sitting down and folding. Uh, I've been doing it for 50 years. This is my 50th year. My parents bought me a really big, lovely book when I was eight years old, just turned eight. And kids do it. A lot of kids like origami. They'll make one or two things and forget about it. I, I kept it going. It, it was a, I thought it was a wonderful art form. I ended up writing 20-plus books. I can't remember. They're all last century. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. How, wait. How do you write a book about <laughs> folded paper? Like, I know what origami is, but I don't know yeah. anything about it. Is there an, there's enough there, like the history and techniques of ah, origami? What you do is you invent new origami models and you write instructions and if, if people bought the book or I, later on I did a DVD and they want to learn, oh, how do I make a kangaroo? How do I make a koala? How do I make a shark or a flapping bird? You buy the book and you say, ah, oh, step one, do this. Step two, do that. And just in the last few weeks, I invented an owl for Brian Dunning for the Skeptoid Media Company. And I've just completed, and Adrian has been my beta tester, one of my beta testers. I've just written all the instructions, and soon that's going to be published, and people can download their own instructions and make their own little owl. Adrian, I mean, he's a man of many gifts. Yeah. You just can't put him in a box. He's just so filled with creativity and surprises. Yeah. Let's debunk some help bunk proof our audience. Uh, Richard, do you have any resources you like, any methods? You well, you mentioned one of them, the faith healers. People read the faith healers. It's really, it makes you angry. It's a good book. Another good book about skeptical investigation is another James Randi book called The Mask of Nostradamus, because he went to France and he did his research and he really studied the methods of Nostradamus and what Nostradamus did. I read those books earlier on in my skeptical career and they taught me a lot. But luckily for us, all you have to do is Google one documentary I would recommend. It's called The Secrets of the Psychics. If you put that in, The Secrets of the Psychics plus James Randi, there is a, I think it's an hour or 90-minute documentary Randi made all about investigating the paranormal and how he goes about it and lots of cases where he did it. It's a wonderful primer on skepticism. Reminds me a little bit of the work of Darren Brown, big popular illusionist in, yeah. and debunker. And, you know, he actually brought somebody over to the United States and faked him as a, as a faith healer before he finally uh -huh. exposed until he actually did what Randy did. He said, yeah. I've been lying to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is a setup, but understand the mechanisms of why, yeah. perhaps why you yeah. had bought into this. Richard, you're an amazing storyteller. Adrian, I have a hard time believing you were ever shy. Is that, I just don't buy that. You are just bubbling with charisma. So yeah, something is- report cards that says she's quiet and sits at the back of the classroom. I don't know what happened. It's no. all Richard's fault. No, so the bodies were switched. The aliens came and they replaced Adrian with another. Both of you are amazing. I'm going to put a bunch of links for some of the stuff we've talked about in the description box. We will continue to follow your work at Skeptical Inquirer and beyond. 
But uh, just love you both and be safe. Happy New Year. And thanks for talking to me. Thank you, Seth. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring the Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. 